the mystery death of Sherlock Holmes's greatest fan. Richard Lancelin Green was probably the foremost collector of the personal papers and materials of the great detective writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Lancelin Green also probably had the largest collection of memorabilia of Sherlock Holmes ever gathered too, and his death would ironically turn out to be most fitting for a plot in one of the Sherlock Holmes novels, though the solution to his death remains cryptically unsolved. On the 24th of May 2004, Richard Lancel and Green was discovered dead in his home in Kensington, London. A shoelace had been wound around his neck and then tightened with the handle of a wooden spoon. He'd been garroted. There was no sign of forced entry into his apartment. It almost appeared to be a locked room mystery. Just prior to his death, Lancel and Green had said someone was after him, yet his death looked more like a suicide. He was found lying on his bed surrounded by stuffed toys and a bottle of gin. A graduate of Oxford University, Green had been co-author of the first extensive biography of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and he had also published a collection of Conan Doyle's writing that had never been put into book form before comprising stories, essays and personal letters. Though wealthy Mr Green was said to be a shy man, he'd often been a public speaker on his favourite topic, and at events for the Sherlock Holmes Society, he would dress in the 19th century outfit of a musical master and to perform as their master of ceremonies. From boyhood, Green had been fascinated with Sherlock Holmes and Dr Watson and he'd even recreated Sherlock Holmes's fictional house, 221B Baker Street, in his family's attic room. In adulthood, he would publish a collection of letters that had been sent by fans of Holmes to the Abbey National Bank, which sat on the site of Holmes's fictional address at Baker Street. Green had an encyclopedic knowledge of all Conan Doyle's works, and he was highly respected by other scholars in that field. He had been working for many years on a definitive opus a three-volume biography of Conan Doyle, and he'd been collecting masses of material for this huge work. After Conan Doyle's death in 1930, many of his papers, said to be worth in their millions, seemed to have vanished. Green had been searching for them for years. He needed them to complete his research for the biography. The London Times wrote that the location of these archives had become a mystery as tantalising as any to unfold at 221B Baker Street. Green discovered that Adrian, one of Conan Doyle's children, had secreted away many of these papers in a locked room in a chateau he owned in Switzerland, with the agreement of Conan Doyle's other children. Adrian had then later, Green believed, stashed some of these papers elsewhere, without the knowledge of Conan Doyle's other children. Green was said to have alleged that Adrian was in the process of trying to sell some of these items when he died suddenly of a heart attack. Upon Adrian's death, the location of these papers became unknown. For many years, Green kept digging, following trail after false trail, wherever it led including the time it apparently led to a Russian princess, who it was said was not really a princess, but an expert in double-cross and deception. Finally, though, Green found that the trail led to the youngest daughter of Conan Doyle, Dame Judy Doyle, a former officer in the Royal Air Force, and now in her sixties, living in London. 
Green contacted the dame and began to develop somewhat of a friendship with her. She invited him to her home one day, says David Gran, staff writer for The New Yorker, who actually carried out the most extensive research into the death of Green for his publication The Devil and Sherlock Holmes. Well, Dame Jean showed Green a box when he came to her house. Inside this box were some of the papers Green had been in search of for so long. However, Green was only allowed to peep at them. Dame Jean explained he was not allowed to take a closer look at them because the items were in the midst of a family dispute. They were to be kept at a solicitor's for safekeeping, she told him. Dame Jean told Green that upon her death they would be bequeathed to the British Library so that all scholars would have access to them. Well, when Dame Jean died in 1977, Green excitedly waited for his chance to finally see the papers, examine them and read them in the British Library. He waited and waited, but they never arrived at the library. Imagine his horror then, when opening the paper one Sunday morning, to discover that Dame Jean's archives were being listed by Christie's Auction House in London. They were to be sold to the highest bidder, within weeks. Lancel and Green simply could not believe this was happening. Now, whoever had the most money, from whatever country, would be able to take them away to add them to their own private collection, and he would never get the chance to see them, never be able to use them for his definitive biography that he had spent years writing. This was a disaster and a disgrace. He had to do something. So he hurried off to Christie's as soon as it was open the following day to see the items for himself. Here they were, tantalisingly within his grasp, yet about to disappear forever. This would be the last time he would see them before they were taken and hidden away again. Not only that, but Green was certain that in this collection were the very papers he had been hunting for so many years, and that these papers had been stolen. He told people he knew this because he had the proof. In a rush to bring a halt to the auction, Green contacted members of the London Sherlock Holmes Society, where he had been chairman once, as well as many of the most eminent scholars of Sherlock Holmes, and he also contacted some of the members of the Baker Street Irregulars a private invitation-only club formed in 1934 and named after Sherlock Holmes's street urchins, who in Conan Doyle's novels served as valuable ears on the ground. Green revealed to all he contacted that he held the proof that this auction should not be allowed to go ahead, for he had a copy of Dame Jean's last will and testimony, he said, in which she bequeathed her father's papers, diaries and books to the British Library. This was the most damning evidence. These items should never have turned up at Christie's auction house, Green told everyone. And with the amassed assistance of his fellow Sherlock Holmes experts and scholars, Green approached the Houses of Parliament to present his proof. It was around this time that Green first began to notice his actions may have attracted the wrong kind of attention. He telephoned a reporter at the London Times and told him, something might happen to me. However, he didn't elaborate any further than that. He told his sister, Priscilla, someone was after him. Later, speaking for the first time since Green's inquest, his sister, Priscilla West, told David Smith of The Guardian that when she arrived in haste at her brother's home, increasingly fearful for his welfare, 
She got no reply when she rang his doorbell repeatedly. She summoned the police, who broke the door down. They found Green dead in his bedroom, garroted by a shoelace. The wooden kitchen spoon was still entangled in the lace. Prior to the official inquest, Westminster coroner Dr P Knapman asked Holmes aficionados if they could find any incident in the canon of Sherlock Holmes' stories which Green may have been seeking to reenact. The coroner was told that there was only a single garrotter who was an agent of Victorian sleuth's arch-enemy, Professor Moriarty. The coroner concluded that garrotting was a very painful way to kill oneself and very unusual. Green's sister told the Guardian that she had spoken to her brother several times during the week before he died. She said he was clearly very stressed about these papers. He became delusional. He said he felt the world was Kafkaesque. Certain people were doing what he wouldn't expect. Certain people were not doing what he'd expect. And so on. He said he hadn't slept for several nights. At one point, he said he wasn't sure I was me. I was very concerned about his state of mind, but I went to see him. Richard was very disturbed, but I wouldn't have said suicidal. I have one or two recent files from his computer, and they are models of lucid argument. He was afraid of something. It was nebulous. Nicholas Hutchin, editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, told Smith of the Guardian that he had known Green for 40 years. He said, I have no doubt it was suicide due to his mind being deranged. I spoke to him by phone for half an hour before his death. He seemed to be accusing me of conniving and conspiring. He thought people were out to get him and he was being bugged. I do not for one minute think there was anything in the suggestion of bugging or being followed. Smith says, among the wilder theories is that Green feared he was being spied on by the Pentagon. One friend, who wished to remain nameless, said Green had become paranoid about John Lennonberg, a strategy analyst in the office of US Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Well, Lennonberg, like Green, was also a highly respected scholar of Sherlock Holmes too and a leading figure in the Baker Street Irregulars. In fact, Lillenberg had contributed to Christie's catalogue for the upcoming auction, and he had been in London in the week of what The Guardian said was Lancel and Green's most erratic behaviour. Lillenberg, however, told the reporter, I have no knowledge of why he was paranoid. It would be silly and delusional to be concerned about me because the work I do has nothing to do with intelligence and surveillance at any level. He added that he hadn't seen Green in over a year, when Green travelled to the US to give a Sherlock Holmes lecture. Lellenberg spoke highly of Green's research and scholarship, and he said there'd been no falling out with Green before his death. Green's older brother, Screen, was not so sure that this was a clear case of suicide, however. He told Smith, there's no note. He was very organised and tidy. I can't believe he would have done something without leaving some kind of evidence. Close friend Owen Dudley Edwards also said, I don't think my friend committed suicide. He was absolutely devoted to his mother and he would have done anything rather than put her through the incredible grief she has been caused. Not all the circumstances of his death are consistent. He had finished a dinner with wine 
Yet when found, there was a bottle of gin with him. You don't combine the two, and he wouldn't have done so. The balance of probability is in favour of him being murdered. It's possible somebody who had something to fear decided he was better off out the way. Green lived alone at the time of his death and was single. Although his last relationship had ended some years ago, he maintained a close relationship with his former boyfriend, Lawrence Keane, who worked as a carer for the elderly. On the night Green died, they'd gone out for dinner. As they were walking back to Green's apartment, Keane later said that Green pointed to a car they'd just passed and said the car was following him, and he added someone was after him. Green said this person was an American. When they went inside Green's apartment, Keane said Green told him they must talk outside, as his whole apartment was bugged. Mr Green told the inquest his mind was not its normal self, and he was telling me someone in America was trying to hunt him down in the Sherlock Holmes Society. At Green's inquest, his general practitioner supplied Green's medical notes, and it became clear that there was no indication that Green had ever suffered from or treated for mental illness. Those who knew Green said he was level-headed, organised, and a sensible practical man. When Green had been found dead, nothing appeared to have been stolen from his apartment, although possibly it would have been difficult for the police to know immediately if anything from his huge collection had gone. On the night of Green's death, his sister Priscilla had tried calling him. She got no answer from Green, and her calls went straight to his landline answer phone. To her surprise, an American man's voice requested her to leave a message. Had an American man been inside Green's apartment? on the night of his death? Well, it would later transpire that Green had wiped his own voice message from the answer phone, and in its place was this American voice. The police managed to deduce that the American voice was actually pre-programmed into the machine upon purchase. Some of his close friends, however, wondered, had Green erased his own voice message so that the American voice would be heard? As a clue, about who might be after him. Had Green been trying to help people solve his impending murder? Or had someone else been in his apartment and wiped his voice message? But if so, why would they do that? Was his murderer trying to shift blame onto someone else? It's said that the police did not check for any fingerprints in Green's home. The coroner, Dr Paul Knapman, was quite flummoxed about what happened to Green that night. He had once attended a meeting of the Sherlock Holmes Society to conduct a mock inquest into the murder of one of the characters in a Sherlock Holmes story, in which a body is discovered in a locked room. He couldn't solve it. At Green's apartment, there had been no sign of a fourth entry, and no evidence anyone else had been inside the apartment that night. However, both the pathologist Sir Colin Berry and the coroner Dr Knapman felt that the manner of Green's death was not one a person would choose to carry out upon themselves, for it would have been very difficult. The problem, they said, was that invariably one would pass out whilst garrotting oneself and therefore be unsuccessful in completing the garrotting. In fact, the pathologist stated he'd only seen one similar death in all of his thirty years of practice, 
and the coroner said to put a lace which must hurt around the neck and continue to twist it it's an unusual form of death that can be done by others green left no suicide note and for an avid writer and collector of notes and journals and letters most people including the coroner found this highly unusual the coroner declared the cause of green's death to be an open verdict could green have been tricked into opening the door for a delivery man who turned out not to be delivering many of his friends were insistent that while green was a connoisseur of wine he would never have bought a bottle of gin yet there on the bed beside him lay a bottle had someone forced him to drink the gin then garroted him had green opened the door to someone he trusted who had brought with him a gift of gin yet isn't garrotting more the art of a professional assassin rather than a literary rival of conan doyle's works it's an unusual method of killing and one that harks back to centuries gone by but perhaps that was the idea had a wealthy private collector objected to green's unrelenting attempt to stop the auction and hired a hitman to do away with green's meddling with the added flair of a rare and dramatic style of murder or was it someone intent on making it a murder befitting a scene in a sherlock holmes story had green done this to himself had he tried to frame a literary rival an arch enemy as fearsome as sherlock holmes's moriarty for his murder although would he really have gone to the extent of killing himself to do this or did green feel that his eternal quest for the lost papers had all been for nothing that his opus would never be completed now and he killed himself in a fit of despair did he stage his own elaborate death as befitting for a central role in one of holmes's stories did lancel and green deliberately attempt to leave an unsolvable murder mystery that would intrigue perplex and puzzle all aficionados of sherlock holmes's work for years to come perhaps the most intriguing aspect of the manner of greens's death is that he was known by everyone for only ever wearing slip-on shoes so where did the shoelace that garroted him come from was lancel and green killed by a rival an assassin or by his own hands <laughs> Two, two, two.
Thank you.